they all fall asleep, I go to my bed and I pretend to fall asleep. So the cogs were turning in my mind as I was lying there because I remembered about the lie that I told that day. Welcome to Stories of Men, Beneath the Surface. I'm Alex Melia. Join me as we discover what it means to be a man in the modern era. That first summer holiday after you've finished high school is a rite of passage for so many young people. For a lot of us, it was the first time pushing off the training wheels of young life and jumping into the unknown of adulthood. It was the mid-90s and Alan and his mates had booked two weeks of sun in Spain. He felt excited, but at the same time, he knew that he was going to struggle with this holiday. We were all there on the bus. I was there with the lads, I was there with my friends. What could possibly go wrong? You know what I mean? It was a boys' holiday to Magaluf. It's everything you ever wanted. They were all talking about how much money that they had, and you know, Gordon had money. Robert had three thousand pesetas because this was pre-euros. Gordon had maybe four thousand pesetas. I said that I had five thousand pesetas. We were set. We were locked. We were loaded. We were ready to go. Britpop was in full swing. We had Live Forever playing in the background. The bus was jumping, man. I felt quite vulnerable when I was on that bus as well. Uh, I felt quite, I guess you might call it social anxiety these days. I felt that in abundance. And I felt like there was something just off center. I wasn't quite me. So a lot of the stuff that I was doing, joining in, it was really just a bit of a mask, um, if I'm being completely honest now. So the lads wanted to book some jet skiing and stuff. They wanted to pick a few different pubs that they wanted to go to, things you would pay for in advance. And I wasn't really up for that. That kind of scared me. And I just moved the conversation on from that because I was going to take this holiday a day at a time and just see how it went. So we've had a great night in Magaluf. We get back to the apartment. Everybody's pretty much smashed. Um, Robert's lying in the corner. Um, he's snoring away. There's uh, pairs of smelly socks lying all over the apartment. And everybody's pretty much out for the count. They all fall asleep. I go to my bed and I pretend to fall asleep. So the cogs were turning in my mind as I was lying there because I remembered about the lie that I told that day, that I had 5,000 pesetas, when in actual fact, I had no money whatsoever. I came here for a 40-night holiday with no money. So I'm lying there and the chance had arrived. Um, everybody was, was smashed, they were sleeping. I got up, and as soon as I put my foot on the cold tiles of the apartment floor, I tiptoed over to the large white Puma bag that was in the corner and I unzipped it really slowly. And I'm thinking, where is it? Where is it? It must be in here. I unzipped the side pocket and there it was. After I took what I thought was enough out of that bag, I then seen a pair of shorts lying on the ground. I think they were Roberts. And up to the shorts, I held them up. And again, I'm thinking, where is it? It must be here. The shorts were kind of heavy. Check the left pocket, nothing there. Check the right pocket, bingo. And I go, take what's mine and just leave enough so not to raise suspicion. Put those shorts down. I creep over to the other side of the room. There's another pair of shorts there. Again, same thing. Check the first pocket, nothing. Next pocket, again, bingo. Take out what I think's right and leave enough. That point, I've got enough. I've got enough to see me for the next day. So I then go back to my bed, feeling like 
At least I'm here for at least one more day. So Alan, things must have been so extreme in your mind and in your life for you to have to steal from friends. How did that feel? It felt really low. Um, it felt like I was doing something um, that I shouldn't be doing because deep, deep down, uh, when you're an addict, specifically a gambling addict, you know what you're doing is wrong, but you, you carry on because you have to keep up that pretense. Um, uh, you know, I felt I felt low almost all of the times. Uh, any other time was just a mask. I was just masking it. Um, the smile, I painted the smile on every single day without knowing if I was actually going to survive that day. Inside, I was just crushed. Um, and that's, you know, that that's... I guess that is the lesson. You know, you're in a place where it's so extreme that you feel as though you have to keep up that addiction to get through the next day. But stealing from your friends on that particular part of the trip, that was about financing the rest of your trip, right, as opposed to gambling. Correct. Yeah, so it was all there to um, to finance the trip, to keep the, the, the charade up, to to make sure that I was never discovered and also to make sure that I felt inclusive. I felt included in this gang of mates because if if the, if the game was up, if they'd known what, what I was in my head, where I was at that time, I would have been excluded from that group. So I was, I was stealing to finance my um, sort of inclusion, uh, almost stealing to be a mate, if you like. Uh, and that, you know, Thinking about it now, um, it felt absolutely awful the time to have to do that, uh, but it felt justified because this illness, this is where this illness can take you. Um, whether you're good, whether you feel happy, sad or indifferent, you feel happy, you feel good, we'll come and celebrate, have a few hours gambling, you feel, you know, you feel on your ass. you know, this illness will come put its arm around you and say, well, you know what I mean, come and, come and have a few hours gambling, you'll feel better. Or... If you just feel like normal, whatever that word means, um, it was, you know, you still felt like gambling. This illness was always there for me, whatever. It simplified my life. Those tiny decisions that we have to make every single day about your family, about your, your, your career, about your house, about the car, about, you know, shopping you have to buy. I didn't have to think about any of that because gambling simplified my life. It was either, do you gamble today? Or do you know it? And it was always inevitably I did. So it simplified life for me. I, I, I couldn't face all of those other micro decisions that we make every other day as sort of normal human beings. It's interesting what you said about fitting in because I think about the lads' holidays that I went on when I was younger. When I was 18, I went to Malia. There was about 10 of us who went on that. And it's all about fitting in. You don't want to be different. So when you're on that minibus and Robert's saying he's got a few thousand pesetas and David's saying this and you're saying I've got 5,000 pesetas or whatever it was, you don't want to tell them obviously that I've got no money. You want to feel like I've got a similar kind of amount of money to them and we're going to have a similar kind of trip, right? Everyone's going to get smashed, chase women and, and whatever goes on in the sun. You don't want to be different. You're spot on. Uh, and, you know, it came as quick as a flash when, you know, Robert had asked me how much have you got straight out of my mouth, um, complete lies. Uh, and at that point, you know, we're at the height of excitement going this holiday. If I dropped that bombshell then, you know, what would have happened? You know, that again, that weight of judgment would have came and, and sort of smashed me. Um, in reality, 
I think my mates would probably have clubbed together and, and seen me through the holiday, but that was that wasn't an option to me. It just went because I needed the feeling of stealing, if you like. I needed to finance it myself um, because that way it kept it it kept things in. It kept things to myself and I didn't need to reveal. Um, and, you know, you believe your own lies. Um, I thought I wasn't that bad of a gambler. I thought, well, there's people out there do what I do. I mean, they'll get through it. They'll get a loan or whatever. But I'm not a, I'm not a compulsive gambler. I'm not an addict. Jeez, oh, come on. You know, I'm not an addict. That's for, you know, other people lower than lower class than me. I'm an addict. What are you talking about? When you think about gambling addicts, you think about middle-aged men who are going on their lunch breaks into different bookmakers. You're not thinking about yourself as a 24-year-old in Magaluf. No, you don't. And that's that's the thing with this this illness, this addiction. Uh, it can Anybody is vulnerable. Anybody can be uh, addicted to gambling. You only need to look at um, tech these days. Kids are glued to phones, games like Roblox and other things like that, where it's almost conditioning kids. You've got FIFA packs conditioning kids to sort of risk and reward. Um and it, it's there's no typical sort of gambler. You're absolutely right though. The stereotypical is a couple of middle aged guys standing in the book, he's spending too much, he needs to go home for his dinner, his missy's gonna you know, she's gonna be on the phone soon. It's it's everything but that. I thought to myself as well about the strategizing. Was it weirdly satisfying for you to be able to do that? Because that's the sort of thing that you're doing when you when you're betting on horses and, and football but you're doing this with your mates and with stealing money from them. It was highly exhilarating. It was it was something that I chased. And the high that I felt when I took that money and, you know, I, I, I tucked it in my own shots um, was almost like relief. Um, you know, I didn't need to think about it anymore. And, you know, the, the old habits die hard or old addictions die hard, sorry. Um, and even to, to this day, um, you know, I'm in recovery these days, but there was an instance last year where I got on a train and I bought a ticket. The train guard was coming through the, the, the train. The train was pulling into the station and I got up and I, my mission was to was to get off that train without him seeing my... my, my and it, I felt that rush. I felt that little slice of that thing again. I paid for a ticket. <laughs> it was, you know, there was no... I always would pay for a ticket now, but I, it felt good. I was cheap because... What I realised was I was never chasing money. I was chasing feelings when I was gambling. It was never about money. Money was, looking back now, money was way down the list of things that I was after. I was chasing feelings. I was chasing of feelings of being enough. Because when I was younger, I never felt enough. Until I went into a bookmaker's, my first two bets won. And at that point, I felt enough. I felt as though I had something in my life that I was good at and you weren't. And my ego went with that it went through the roof and i chased those feelings and i chased them all my life wow that's really interesting and the fact that you had beginner's luck as well made it worse for you yeah it was i i was convinced that i had some sort of superpower you know i could predict the the, the outcome of dog races the outcome of of horse races and all those gaps that were in my life up to that time you know emotionally academically physically spiritually when those first couple of bets won, all those gaps just got levelled up. There was no gaps. They were synthetically um, sort of made up. You know, all those voids were filled uh, by by the gambling. Uh, and I truly felt that I was, I was good enough. Well, when you initially told me about stealing from all your friends, I didn't think, oh, well, Alan's a terrible guy. I just thought clearly he's 
been so taken in by the addiction that you are willing to go to those extreme measures because of the predicament that you're in. This illness will take you to, to places that you you never thought. I thought when I was gambling, there was a little word called yet. Well, I've not done that yet. I've not done that yet. And one by one, those yets just get smashed through. And all, until there was no more yets left, I'd done like everything. Uh, or in my mind, I thought I'd done everything on the scale um, that a, a, an addict could could do. But it will convince you that um, you're not that bad a, a, a gambler. You've just not had your turn yet. You've just not had the big win yet. You've just and I didn't even gamble for you know. You talk about the 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 dream world of the compulsive gambler. I wasn't like gambling to you know dreaming of buying yachts and houses. I was gambling in the end for the sake of gambling. I was in the bookmakers and my my, my feet were nailed to the floor. I couldn't move. You know I remember being absolutely starving with hunger. There's a Greg's across the road and I cannot make the trip. I just can't make the trip. You know, there, there's the virtual racing's on. I'm betting in Tom and Jerry by this time, cartoon dogs. Uh, you know, and these kind of products were made for people like me that, you know, that, that, that just, I would have betting two flies going up a wall is, is the truth, Alex. We all go through this element of comparison. We compare ourselves to other people. Did you compare yourself to people who are in much more extreme scenarios than you and go, oh, well, I've not done what they've done yet. I did. I knew people that uh, I seen in the, the bookmakers that one of the bookmakers that I gambled in, there was a guy in there, a guy called Bobby, and he would throw pens at the, at the screens. He would spit at the screens. He would regularly abuse staff. Uh, and I thought, Do you know what? That's a proper addict. He's doing it right. He's hardcore. That, that, that's, that's not me. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm no one near that. If I get to that stage, I'm going to try and look for some help. So I justified the ongoing addiction that I had by that comparison that you mentioned and by sort of measuring myself against these other people. And I think the illness made me do that because it kept the illness uh, live in, in my life and it kept me gambling. Yeah. If you think about those stages, so after you leave Magaluf, you told me before we started recording that the money that you had left from financing the rest of that trip, you exchanged it for pounds and then you started to gamble with that money when you went back to Scotland, right? So what was the journey like? What sort of stages did you get to, to the point where you were at your absolute worst? So as you say, I come back from that trip, the first thing in my mind was was using that money, my, my, the money that I'd stolen, back to the foreign exchange, gambled it and... I justified gambling that money by saying, do you know what? I've stolen this money, so I need to get rid of it anyway. So whether I win or whether I lose, it's 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 not my money anyway. I'll just get rid of it. And I went from there, you know, my mid-20s up to my 30s, still staying with my parents. It's where I became um, a gambling addict, where I just, every single waking moment was like, um, and people ask me, I say, well, what's it like? You know, I've been asked the question before. What's it like to be a junkie? People have actually asked me that. And, you know, the, the best of analogy I can give you is we all have, most of us have a mobile phone these days. You know, and from the moment you get up in the morning, that phone will ping, it will vibrate, it will buzz, it will it will do all sorts of things until you go to sleep at night. We, on average, we have around 200 odd notifications a day. Try and go a whole day without looking at your phone when it buzzes or pings. Sounds easy. 
it's not. And that's what it was like for me. It was like mental notifications in my brain telling me that I had to gamble. And I couldn't turn away from it because, again, it was all about feeling. So humans are quite simple creatures. I mean that in the best way. Thought, um, feeling, behaviour. The thought would come in, that would create the feeling, and then that would, in turn, would create the behaviour of, of going to the bookmakers. So 30-year-old, I'm a, I'm a hardened gambling addict. Um, and over the next sort of 10 years, it would just be a slow, subtle deterioration of my life. Um, a failed suicide attempt in there as well, and until I crawled in the doors of Gamblers Anonymous and thought I couldn't be helped. I just thought I, I was different from every, from everybody, you know. You said before, oh, I'm not a gambling addict because he's spitting at windows and he's abusing staff. You said at 30 you were a gambling addict. At what point did you admit to yourself or did you realise I'm actually a gambling addict? What sort of stage were you at then? Um, I, I was drinking a little bit um, at that time. Um, I had my own apartment. Um, I had the job that I'd always wanted right in the middle of Glasgow. Um, and I worked for Yellow Pages, uh, which back in the day it was, you know, people paid loads of money to be in that big yellow book. Uh, and I found out I was good at it. I was a good salesperson. I made loads of bonus. So every quarter you'd regularly get a five-figure bonus. And the day it all came crashing down was um, I went on my lunch break and I'd arranged it beforehand. I went into the Halifax and lifted £14,500. And I blew the lot in my lunch hour. Everything. I was standing in the bootmaker, suited and booted, and I blew the lot. And at that point, I thought, I can't do this anymore. And you, you've blown the stereotype of middle-aged man, maybe just wearing like, a, I don't know, a football shirt or some very bog-standard clothing. You're in there suited and booted, professional guy, clearly doing well for himself. And I've seen it so often, um, especially in retail and bookmakers. I've seen guys that are in there. I've seen ladies in there too, but guys that are in there that might be joiners, it might be taxi drivers, and they were doing the same shift as me, a nine to five in the bookies. Other guys that are sitting booted. God, I remember um, when I worked for some of the companies I worked for, the, the, the works laptop, the works phone would go into cash converters halfway through the month. I had customers trying to call me and I was standing in their bookies every single day. My boss trying to phone me, can't get a hold of me. The phone's sitting in cash converters. And then when I get paid, I would go and buy this stuff back out. It wasn't even my stuff, it was the what. And at that point, looking back now, I was way addicted way before than what I thought I was. Um, but yeah, it's interesting now looking back. You said something interesting before about you never felt like you were enough. And I've definitely gone through those stages in my life. And the more that you open up, you talked about vulnerability before, the more you open up about how you felt to other men, they'll then tell you something that they wouldn't have ordinarily told you if you hadn't opened up. So it's almost like I open up and I say how I felt or I had this experience. And then that gives them the permission oh, well, he's not going to judge me because he's just opened up about some vulnerability in his life. So that is, is massive. Have you had those kinds of situations where you've opened up to a friend and then they've opened up to you about something that they were feeling? If I had a pound for every time that has happened, I would be sitting on a beach in some faraway... It, it, it happens constantly. I've been in 
taxi, you know, taxis before, and a taxi driver will ask me, where are you going? I'll say, the airport. Uh, what is it you do? And, you know, I, I work for a, a fantastic um, company called Epic Risk Management. We, you know, we, we, we work um, in that sector, and we are the, the sort of world's leading uh, gambling harm consultancy. Uh, and they ask, oh, how did you get into that? And then I'll tell them my story. And I'm like, the first thing they'll say is, I gamble, but I don't gamble that much. They almost start apologising for, you know, like they, they maybe do gamble too much. I've, you know, I'm quite a talkative person now, you might pick up, but I can speak to anybody now on buses, on trains, on planes. Who are you? What do you do? Tell me about your life. You know, not quite as blunt as that, but if somebody starts talking to me, um, I'm going to I'm going to ask questions. Uh, and it's happened so many times. People have just opened up on the spot. I've had people crying um, in front of me just from opening up. And there's a great thing in Gamblers Anonymous, Alex, and it's about the, the, the recovery programme. So I'm on a 12-step recovery programme. Um, and one of the sort of sayings in there is, to keep it, to keep your recovery, we must give it away. And giving that away, it really hits home with me. You know, giving away that vulnerability, being able to share is massive. And, you know, it changed my life, the power of opening up and speaking. Um, it, it changed my life massively. I, you know, I don't go to Gamblers Anonymous these days to stop gambling. A day at a time, I don't get gambling urges now. That's, you know, I'm quite conscious of that as a day at a time. Um, I go there now to um, sort my head out. You know, things can happen during my week that I might not be able to speak to other mates about, but I can go there, I can put it all out in the middle of the floor and I'll go away with the good stuff. And it's a bit like when you put the rubbish out the weekend, you don't bring it back in the house. And that's how it works for me. After listening to this, it's easy to think, oh, Alan's a terrible guy for stealing from his mates. But honestly, I didn't judge him because after speaking to so many men over the years with addictions, they can make you do crazy things. The sad thing about all this that I was thinking was, how alone Alan must have felt. Couldn't tell his mates and family, plotting against his friends for his own ends. It wasn't even something that helped him either. It's like the more the addiction takes its toll on you, the less likely you are to actually reach out for help. The crazy thing as well about all this is that they're actually doing an anniversary trip back to Magaluf for their 50th birthdays and some of his friends still don't even know what happened. I think it takes a brave man to stand up to the ills of his past life and face up to the fact that he didn't do great things to his mates but that he was under addiction at that time. It really wasn't the real Alan Smart there. It was the addiction talking and encouraging him to do things that others would find, well, disturbing. It was like no genuine human emotion was involved. Other than the thrill and the buzz of not getting caught, there was no empathy, no feeling for others. It was just pure addiction-based behavior. Like it somehow wipes away your ability to express human emotion and feeling for yourself and for others. Maybe you're listening to this and you feel for Alan and his actions. Or maybe you're just listening to this in horror, absolutely not comprehending how you could steal from your own friends. But imagine you were in his situation. Do you think you'd be able to tell other people about your gambling addictions? Or do you feel like the shame would keep you silently suffering? If you or someone you know is struggling with any form of gambling addiction, then please visit epicriskmanagement.com for more information. That's E-P-I-C riskmanagement.com. <laughs>